Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from a customer success evangelist, maybe the customer success evangelist. He literally wrote the book on it. It's called Customer Success. Over the past decade, he's helped build the customer success community and one of its leading companies, Gainsight, where he served as chief customer officer, general manager of EMEA, and chief evangelist. He's one of a handful of people who helped drive my transition into the role. Dan Steinman, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Happy to be here, Ethan. Thanks for inviting me again. Every time we have a conversation, it's fun. Uh, so I'm looking forward to this one again. Yeah, me too. We had a similar conversation uh, almost four years ago now, and a lot has changed, I think, for both of us uh, relative to um, our careers in general, our lives in general, um, and then also with regard to the chief evangelist role. So I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts on it now and probably doubling back into our initial conversation about it to kind of to map some of the some of the differences and similarities but um to get going I'll ask you the opening question that I ask everyone which is what is the most important job of a chief evangelist yeah first thing is has it really been 4 years I guess it has oh huh? man we well a, not a lot, qu- a, not quite but close yeah a lot of things have definitely changed so uh, so what is the job of, what's the primary job of a chief evangelist? I think I have to say it depends a little bit. It depends on what you're evangelizing. So for example, at Gainsight as chief evangelist, what I'm almost always evangelizing is the category of customer success. I've known people who did, whether it was by the same title, but basically did the chief evangelist role who are in that evangelizing a specific technology, maybe the entire product line for a particular company, but oftentimes it was a particular technology that was embedded into their products. And the idea was the idea I think across all of them is evangelism is the idea of creating um, awareness of something that's making a difference. Like if you go back to the original uh, form of the word evangelism, it was spreading the gospel, right, from a Christian standpoint. So we're spreading the gospel of something. It might be a particular technology. It might be a product. In my case, as chief evangelist, we've always focused on spreading the gospel of the world of customer success, knowing that if we do that really well and we make that world better and bigger, we'll ultimately be able to sell our software in behind that. But most of our evangelism doesn't ever include the word gainsight. It's really about this category, this new category of customer success. And I think that's why many people who have that evangelist title are at companies that are creating new categories or something very new within an existing category. Yeah, the way you described it to me. So uh, for folks listening, I'm referring to a, a four episode podcast series I did. Dan was one of the four people kind enough 
to give me an hour of his time to talk about evangelism. And you gave me one of two things. When people ask me what this whole thing is, you gave me one of uh, two things that I carry into every one of those conversations. One came from Sangram Vajray, which is evangelize the problem, not the product. In your case, you're talking about the category rather than the product. But the one that you gave me at the time that I still use today is if you are innovating, you must be evangelizing. And so um, draw that a little bit um, more with a little bit more detail, this, this category component relative to innovation. Yeah. Yeah. I think another way to say that, and the, probably the most common way to say that is you better be doing thought leadership. That's what we really mean when we say that. And there, we live in this content driven world. So if you as a company or even as an individual, if you're not providing thought leadership about something around your category, around your product, around your company, there's almost no way to survive because you can't attract people to your website unless there's content there that they want because they can find out a whole lot about your company from a whole other whole lot of other places, much less biased than what your webpage is going to say, right? So your website better include a lot of content. And ultimately that content, I think, for the most part, has to fall under that umbrella of thought leadership. When I was at Marketo before Gainsight, we basically did the same thing, a ton of thought leadership around the new world of marketing. Marketing's been around forever, but digital marketing and marketing automation, as we call it, was pretty new. And it really needed to be evangelized because it was so different from the old way of doing marketing. And I think customer success has kind of similar characteristics. It's not like we never cared about customers before. It's not like we never paid any attention to them, but the subscription economy drove us to the point where we had to have a hyper-focus on customers because now our bottom line revenue was largely in the hands of existing customers instead of just selling to new prospects. So I think if you just think about thought, thought leadership and content-driven thought leadership, that's really what we're talking about when it comes to innovation, because only when you innovate something is there any room for thought leadership. Otherwise, you're you're just making stuff up. Yeah, and uh, that innovation angle is what separates content at some level to thought leadership. Let's just let's peel that apart just a little bit because I, I can imagine someone listening thinking like, "Well, my marketing team creates a bunch of content. Why, yeah. why is that? Why why is that enough? Or how might that be enough?" Yeah, I mean, ultimately, content tends to fall to marketing and probably rightly so because their job is to create demand. And one of the ways of creating demand is through good content and thought leadership, right? So I think it's it's truly incumbent upon marketing to be driving that content. And you know, if you're a good marketing person, you know that the best content comes only when you're doing something different as a company than everybody else. Like coming out and say, saying, uh, we've decided that in this world, what we need is a way to create really nice looking slides. And so we've created a product that helps you to create nice looking slides that might even be able to be animated and things like that. No one would ever go read that. It's like, okay, you're, you're inventing PowerPoint. Good for you. Uh, hold good luck to you. But that's not innovation, right? So content, I think, has to be driven by innovation, which means, and this is true, especially in SaaS companies, there's a balance across all parts of the business that is required, that really wasn't required before when we were in the enterprise world. And that is 
marketing needs to be pushing product to do things that are innovative so that you can create content for it and start bringing you know new prospects into the pipeline because of that now the the real reason to create a better product is not so marketing has an easier job it's to make your product better for customers but it it is a good thing i think when different parts of the company are putting pressure on other parts of the company to say hey do your job better because it'll make my job easier in customer success we do this all the time we say to sales do your job better so that our customers have the right expectations when they come to us right and they haven't been oversold and we also say to product do your job better so our customers get a better product when they buy it and marketing has every right to do the same thing by the way marketing should be doing the same thing with customer success like give me some content tell me about customers that are doing really well and why they're doing well and what they're doing that's different from the rest of the world that's all innovation on the part of our customers that carries way more weight than us internally talking about it right so innovation comes in a lot of forms if it comes from our customers that's the best possible form so marketing i think not only has a right but an obligation to go push on other people to help them create that um that thought leadership through some kind of innovation so much good stuff in there. Um, I guess I would love for you to speak to as chief evangelist with the opportunity to kind of move and drift about in the organ, not aimlessly, but drift about within the organization and equally important within your customer base and equally important within the broader community of people who um should know about or are learning about customer success, whether or not they've committed to gainsight is a separate topic separate but related. Um, talk about your ability to move through those different stakeholder groups and what that allowed you to do from a thought leadership perspective. Where I'm going here is um, trying to cast or, or validate the idea that the chief evangelist has a unique opportunity because she or he is not in the marketing team tax tasked with 18 other things and trying to find a peer in customer success that they can, you know, have a conversation with. You have the authority as a chief um, and a longtime team member with a great deal of trust and respect in the organization. And you have this evangelist position, which doesn't anchor you in any one team per se. And you can move about all of these and inform yourself, but also we form inform all the other um, stakeholders in a really unique way. Like, um, have I drawn that out correctly to your experience and, and anything you'd like to add to that um, vision for a really unique role that's very powerful? Yeah, I think you you nailed it, Ethan. You've been doing this too, so you have pretty good kind of handle on on what it means. And by the way, what it means is probably not the same at every company. And one of the challenges I think we'll get to is talking about how do we measure it? That's a pretty hard thing. But at its core, uh, evangelism is taking your message to the people, whoever those people are. What I find is, for me at Gainsight, there's kind of two parts to this. One is we try to do a lot of innovation in the area of customer success. And I don't mean it with our product. I mean with the structure of our organization and some of our processes and the way we think about doing customer success. So I get a chance to take that to our customers, to our prospects, to the general world. Like, here's some things we tried. And one of the best tactics is, here's some things we did that did not work at all. 
people will always lean in when you talk about mistakes, right? Because they want to avoid them. So I get to take what we're doing internally innovating to the masses, if you will. And then I also get to, quote, have to listen to all of those folks too. So one of the things that's cool because Gainsight is one of the leaders in the customer success technology space is I get to interact with a ton of companies that are doing customer success. And we do not have a corner on the market of intelligence on how to do customer success. There's a lot of companies out there doing some really amazing things. And one of our jobs as a company, and specifically me as chief evangelist, is to listen to those things because we can then amplify those things to the, to the bigger community with the permission of those customers. And there's so much innovation going on because, you know, Gainsight's still a relatively small company, you know, 1,100 people or something like that. But if you have a customer like Cisco or Adobe using Gainsight and doing customer success to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of customers, they're, they're doing things at a level of scale that we can't even dream about. But we're trying to sell to and evangelize to other companies like that. So we better be listening to them about what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And some of that becomes pressure on our product to make our product better for those kinds of big scale. But a lot of it's input for me to then share when I get in front of big groups or even small groups and talk about, here's what we've learned from our customers because we're talking to hundreds of them every week. In a couple of weeks, I'll be at our event in Europe called Pulse Europe and there'll be 1,100, 1,500 people and I'll get to talk to a whole bunch of them. And you better believe I'm listening for what they're doing that's different from what we're doing and what's working for them and what isn't. So I think the evangelism is, it's really three parts. There's some fundamentals of customer success that really have formulated over the years. And I, it's become really clear to me how to set up and foundationalize your customer success team. Then there's the things that we're trying, some working and some not working that I get to talk about. And then there's all the things we hear from our community, um, both in person and in events that we can then take. And again, as I said, amplify to the greater community. And I think from an evangelist standpoint, that gives us so much more credibility where it's not just us saying, here's what we think you should do. It's us being transparent about things that have worked and things that haven't worked. And then really taking input from the community. Even in our book that you mentioned, uh, there's in the middle of the book are the 10 laws of customer success. Gainsight didn't write those laws. My CEO wrote one of them and I wrote one of them and the other eight were curated from the community. So it's a perfect example of how we took that curation of the other eight laws of customer success, put them into a book and then amplified that to everyone who's ever bought or read that book. And that's, for me, that's really vindicating um, because it gives me so much more credibility when I say, let me tell you about one of our customers who did something we never thought about that's really working for them. And now we're doing it. And now we want all of you to know about it because we think it could help you as well. And that's, uh, that's probably one of the more gratifying parts, not, not me preaching as if I know everything, but me getting the chance to learn a lot from our community and then share that out with the rest of the community. Yeah, that humility to ask and listen and is obviously powerful in almost every single role we play in our lives, uh, yeah. but certainly certainly highly applicable here. And it's funny, I was thinking about when um, 
BombBomb software kind of outgrew me. I mean, when I joined the company, um, A, we had almost no customers and B, almost no revenue. Um, and I was one of the most, if not the most prolific users of the yeah. software. And it stayed that way for some period of time. Um, and then it just outgrew me. We were solving other customer problems that we didn't have necessarily. And so that um, it's immediately humbling when someone asks you a question you don't know. You know, like yeah. you feel like you're supposed yeah. to know it all, yeah, um, yeah. but, but then you really embrace it and it becomes a, a point of joy. Um, and what I would call healthy pride to be able to connect customers with one another who are using your platform or see the world in the same way, um, which is one of the reasons events are so powerful, which kind of leads me to, um, I'll ask this uh, together, but we can treat them separately or one onto the, on onto the other rather, you know, you mentioned a book, you mentioned, um, publishing content, probably creating and writing content, speaking, live events, et cetera. Just give folks a little bit of a rundown, like in your um, in your service as chief evangelist, what are some of the core functional pieces of that? What does that look like for you and why? And then we can kind of carry that into the conversation you already teed up, which is how do you know this is worth it? Yeah. Yeah. This is really a great question, Ethan. And, and actually not not necessarily a simple one to answer. What what is what does it mean to be a chief evangelist? Um, and how do you grow into that role? Like part of my story is kind of similar to the one you just told, where I was at Marketo running customer success before I joined Gainsight. And in that role at Marketo, I became Gainsight's third customer. So I was their premier customer, right? They needed a big SaaS name as a customer. And I basically created the entire early product because basically I said, I need this, 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 and this. And Gainsight said, okay, 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 okay. So the core of our product is still that thing I asked them to create for me at Marketo. So it's still an important part of our product, but it's now, back then it was 98% of our product. Today it's like 9% of our product. And it's really outgrown me too. I mean, we can do things with our product that I've never thought of, never dreamed of, and never been in an operation role, operational role where I had to. So it's just interesting. I bet there's chief evangelists out there who started off as a vendor's best customer and then moved to that company and became evangelist. I just talked with one. His name's Colin Mitchell. I think that mm -hmm. episode will release at one or two before this one. Exactly it. Yeah. I love this product. Oh my gosh, where's this product been all my life? Yeah. Here's what I think about it. And next thing you know, he's... um going to Saster with them. Yeah. He sees yeah. that other customers love it as much as he does and they <laughs> work out some agreements. Yeah. So anyway, I love I love the idea that you were um a premier customer for Gainsight and, and really helped drive it. So you understood it understood it at an at a deep, deep level. I almost said intuitive. Um probably wasn't quite that, but um I love that as as part of your origin story and certainly part of it that I didn't know. Um yeah. so so again carry on with um what is it like to bring that it? to life? Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded, by the way, as we were talking, Ethan, I'm reminded of a pretty old story. I think it was Robert Kraft, who now owns the New England Patriots, but I think he's the guy who did the commercial where he said, I used Gillette. It was about Gillette. I used the razors and I loved them so much that I bought the company. Right. That's right. chief evangelism in a nutshell. Right. Yeah. In in my case, I, I needed something so badly. I bought the product and then I joined the company. Uh, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't buy Gainsight. I bought Gainsight the product. I didn't buy Gainsight the company. 
but it's well, the same just, idea. Sorry, really, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just don't want to let anyone miss the idea of a company. They, they weren't beholden to serving your needs as a Marketo customer success leader. This co-creation element, like just this kind of community orientation, customer feedback, active listening, um, not that you need to do everything customers tell you, but like just to know that that was part of the gainsight culture and ethos yeah. from the earliest days is a point that cannot be missed. Yeah. And there's a key element in there, which is when you only have three customers, you're probably listening pretty close to all three of them. Totally. But when you have 1500 or if you're Salesforce and you have 200,000, you still have to have somebody who's figuring out which customers are the ones we should be listening to. Because there's a lot of customers who are saying, well, fix this bug and change all your buttons from blue to pink. Those customers are not worth listening to, at least on those points. But the customer who says, you're solving this problem for me today, but here's the problem I'm going to have to solve a year from now. Are you working on that? Or can I trust you to be able to solve that problem for me a year from now? It's a problem of scale and complexity and authentication and who knows what it is. But you got to pinpoint those kinds of customers who are going to push you to do things you would never do if you were just trying to figure it out on your own. Like I've always said, every company needs a few very loud, very demanding customers. You can't afford to have all of them be that way, but you need a few of those. And the bigger they are, the more money they're paying you, the more they can kind of push you around. And that's okay if they're pushing you in the right direction. Because it's a little bit like my analogy is always, uh, when back in the day when I worked out a lot, I would always end my workouts pretty soaking wet, like and feeling pretty good. Like I pushed myself pretty hard. And then one day I got a personal trainer and I did a workout with him and I couldn't walk for three days. And I realized I was not pushing myself at all, not compared to that. Right. And that's what good customers do. And I think one of my jobs as an evangelist is to be listening. This is a customer that's trying to solve a problem that I think we could solve and no one else is doing it. And if we do it, it'll open up a new market, right? That's the job of anyone who's talking to customers. But if you're carrying the chief title, you better be really in tune. Like you, to be a great CSM, you have to have natural curiosity anyway. To be, in my case, chief evangelist, you really have to up that level. You really truly have to be curious because you'll never really understand someone's business unless you're asking not scripted questions, but questions out of true curiosity. So back before we get too far off on another tangent, back to what is a chief evangelist. Um, I think different at every company. For me, because it was category focused, the very, very simple job description for me was find groups of at least one other person who want to talk about customer success and go join in the conversation or lead the conversation. And of course, over time, that's turned into uh, conferences where we're speaking. And I say we, because the chief evangelist of every company in the world is the CEO, no matter who else has that title, the CEO is going to always be the face and the spokesman. So when I say we, I mean, a bunch of different people at Gainsight, our chief customer officer has to be an evangelist because she's doing it every day. She's living it operationally. So she comes at it from an operational focus. I come at it from a more kind of philosophical focus, I suppose. And Nick is kind of a little bit of both, our CEO. But it was as simple as that. In fact, the origin of me being 
chief evangelist at Gainsight is kind of a revealing story. I think I was chief customer officer for about three and a half years. And I realized that we were growing to a point where I was not the best person, even in our own company, to do the operational role that was being required. Metrics and processes and all of that stuff, which I was able to do, but never really loved it. So I went to my CEO and I, I basically said, I think, I think I might leave the company. It's getting pretty big. I like startups. And Nick, to his credit, he said to me, he said, well, that's okay if you want to step out of that role. I think we have other people who could step into it, but I don't want you to leave the company. And then he said these words, which I think are a description of a chief evangelist and at the time, a very high compliment to me. He said, I've noticed that every time you talk to a prospect or a customer, the value of our stock goes up. So why don't you do that more often? And that was the end of our conversation about what it meant to be chief evangelist. We revisited it. We've tried to figure out how to measure it. We can talk about that. I think it's worth talking about. But at the end of the day, it always boiled down to that. Just get out there and be in front of the curve with regard to what's happening in customer success, why it's important, how to get started doing it, how it's changed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with a little bit of operational rigor thrown in there. But that's not that's not where I'm really uh, the most valuable person to talk about that because I haven't been in that operational role for a while. But um, if you can find the right CEO who just says, go talk to customers and prospects a lot, uh, that's a great job description. Uh, how you measure is a different story, but we can talk about that. But anyway, for me, uh, that's what it meant to be in customer success. And, you know, that means salespeople have access to you because in the right situation, salespeople always bring someone who can help move the deal along. And sometimes that's me because we're trying to convince a CEO that customer success is really important and that there aren't any public SaaS companies that don't have it, for example, things like that. Uh, and then a lot of marketing, both lots of blogs. We've written a ton of blogs. I've written a bunch of those. I helped to write the book, uh, lots of podcasts, right? So uh, whenever someone says, hey, I have a topic that might be related to customer success, will you do a podcast or a webinar with me? My answer is always yes, because we can always weave it in or at least figure out how like, for example, if someone wants to talk about customer support, that's different than customer success. But there's a relationship and a collaboration and an overlap that's really important. So I'd love to talk about that. And I did that recently as well. So there's plenty of opportunities, especially if, you're, if your evangelism is really helping people. And specifically, I mean, are we helping people do their jobs better? And boy, if you do that, you get affinity from those people for your company. That is almost hard to overstate. It doesn't guarantee they'll buy from you, but it does guarantee you that they're going to give you a shot at their business and you, you will still have to earn it. Uh, but, but creating that kind of an affinity through thought leadership, through our blogs, through our books, through our podcasts, through our webinars, our speaking, our own event speaking engagements, that's what it means for me to be chief evangelist, always with an eye towards, am I building, am I making the category bigger? Because if the category gets bigger and we keep our same market share, Gamesight's going to get much bigger at the same time, right? Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. 
If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelists, let's get back to it. Yeah, really good. And I love your choice of the word affinity there um, near the end of that. Um, and I it reminds me of a phrase I've always liked, which is irrational buying forces, right? Yeah. It's it's, you know, let's okay, all of the all of the numbers on paper look good enough. Um, I've seen some basically compelling statistics, and there's something about the way that you, as the human evangelist of this concept and opportunity and challenge and problem moved me in such a way that I'm off the fence now. Right. And it's, it's this, and that's what it is. It's affinity and it's affinity for the brand as well as affinity toward you and, and the ideas that, that you um, bring to life. So I guess with that, let, let's go into a little bit of the, um, how do you know it's working, but I'll ask it in a very specific way. And then you can start broad and get specific or start specific and broaden it out, whatever you prefer. But you know, what I hear, what I heard you say in that last passage is like, you know, people are inviting you to do things. Marketing is asking you to do things. Um, salespeople are asking you to do things. Um, I, I would assume that CSMs are asking you to do things. I certainly participate with our CSM team in active accounts, um, the same way I support our AEs whenever they need or want it. How do you know what to say no to? Um, and I'm asking that not in the context of what's good and what's bad, but like, what, what do you immediately say yes to? What do you, what do you say no to? Like, how do you judge? And, and I'm basically asking, how do you value your time and value yeah. your effort? How do you know that what you're doing is working? Or how do you know that something is worth more than something else in terms yeah. of your expertise and your truly unique perspective um, on the state of CS and on Gainsight, et cetera? Yeah, it's such a great question. Ethan, because what you're really saying is how do you prioritize, which is yeah, part of yeah, everyone's absolutely. job, right? Um, I don't know if this answer will be all that satisfying, frankly, but at Gainsight, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things we strive for is to not say no very often, especially outwardly. Now, we do have to say no to customers. They ask for crazy things, and at some point, you got to say no. We're not building that feature. Those pink that's, buttons. That's Zendesk or whatever. That's somebody else. Um, so you do have to know how to say no. That's one of the skills of a good CSM is learning how to say no. But for me, uh, unless I get really overloaded, almost nothing that I do has a ton of urgency to it, right? No, almost nobody says, Hey, can we chat about customer success for an hour? And it's gotta be today because I have a meeting tomorrow. It's just not that kind of a thing. It's much more typically more philosophical. So I try to say yes to almost everything that I possibly can. Now, sometimes events won't line up so that you can say yes to everything, but that's one of the advantages we have that we have four or five people, at least in the company, that can do almost any event in front of almost any group of people. Part of my job is to save the operational folks time so they can focus on running their businesses. But if I get asked to do something and I can't, I'll ping it over to Nick and he'll see if uh, our CCO or our CPO or our CRO can do it and vice versa. When Nick gets overloaded, he lets the spillover come to me. So we try really hard to find a way to say yes to almost anything. The things I would say no to 
are things that I think this is again going to be kind of a lame answer, but things that clearly don't advance our topic. So, for example, I think CX has changed a lot, but I'd say seven or eight years ago, we got invited to speak at a number of CX conferences. And at that time, CX was so different from customer success. Customer success was very operational. CX was kind of very survey focused. And we just didn't get a lot of traction talking to people who were focused on CX. Today, that's different because they've CS and CX have kind of collaborated a lot more than they used to, but there was a time when they didn't. And I think customer support would kind of fall into that. Like if we got invited to a customer support event to talk to a bunch of customer support people, we might, we might still say yes, depending on how we can weave the conversation, but there's a decent chance we would say no, because the people probably pinged us just because they think customer success is the same as or just a new buzz phrase for customers. Yeah, you don't know what you're asking for, and yeah, I don't think yeah, you want what you're going yeah, to Yeah, exactly, say. exactly. So that's I think that's the level of pickiness that I go through. I, I really do try to say yes to almost everything. And given infinite amount of time, which if you stretch out the calendar long enough, it's not infinite, but you know, if I can push things off for a week or two, which I often do, uh, then I can speak to an awful lot of people about it. So I, I don't end up saying no a lot. I think we do say no when we when when it's clear that it's really not in our sweet spot. Yeah, that's and that's a great filter. Um, I get the feeling that you are obviously a highly trusted, proven value, just based on what you you know shared the story of what Nick said to you when you said, "I think it's maybe time for me to leave." <laughs> um, so, so just give us maybe some. Have you ever? Have you or anyone else in the organization? ever tried to put like direct ROI on your efforts, like any trials and failures there, or is it, we trust this, we know this, uh, various people have enough anecdotes that we're not even going to waste the time to try to chart, measure, plot all of the activities versus the outcomes. And of course we all know a attribution is extremely difficult anyway for even when we're tracking clicks. Um, so this is just a whole nother layer of complication. How yep. deep have you, how deep did you or anyone else on the team go to try to quantify your output and your outcomes? Yeah. At one point, Nick and I, Nick, our CEO and I sat down and we talked about how are we going to measure this? Cause I was a little bit uncomfortable in a role that didn't have any clear kind of quantifiable outcome. Um, I knew I I knew I was kind of okay with it for a while, but in the long run, I felt uncomfortable. So we sat down and for a couple of quarters, we decided we were going to measure a few things. We measured how many sales deals I got involved in and, and what percentage of them closed. We measured how many people uh, I spoke to. You know, if I did multiple events, we'd just add up the, the count of people. We did a few other things as well, but at the end of the day, we looked at all those numbers one time and we just said, it just doesn't tell us anything. Like your point about attribution. Like if I spoke to a, a, a sales prospect and they ended up closing, there's just no way to attribute whether they closed because of me. And you could be like marketing and say, yeah, I'm going to count that whole million dollar deal because I talked to them once for seven minutes, nine months ago. And there's nothing wrong with that. You got to figure out some attribution model. And the easiest one is everyone takes full credit for everything they touched. 
Because otherwise you have to figure out, do I take 2.1% of that or is it 3.7%? That's just crazy. So we tried pretty hard. We put a few measurements in place. We tracked them over a couple of quarters. And then uh, in one review that Nick and I were having, we both looked at each other and we just shrugged our shoulders and said, why are we wasting our time? And ultimately what this really boiled down to was the CEO having a vision and enough trust, not just in me, but that there was something out there that we had to be doing in order to advance the company. And that and good CEOs make a lot of good decisions without nearly enough data because their instincts are really good. And Nick's instinct was, we have to do this. This is really important. Uh, and we knew some of that was true because Pulse had become a pretty big thing over the first three or four years that we did it. That's all evangelism. That was always just talking about customer success. So we kind of had some pretty good insight into how important it was, but ultimately it came down to the CEO saying, I just know that we have to do this and you're the guy to do it along with me and a few other people. It wasn't just me, but so we tried hard. We didn't do anything at all. Then we tried pretty hard to measure it. And then we kind of threw our hands up and said, we just got to trust that this is worthwhile. And it, it, I think if we, if we measure the company's success as a proof point, then it's clearly worked out well. If we measure something specific, like I don't say that everyone should write a book, but I know you did, Ethan, and, and I did. Uh, if we just measure the sale of the book and the number of deals that have opened up because somebody read the book or we sent it to them and they responded then to our emails because we sent them a hardcover book, I mean, it it has paid itself a hundred times over. It's like that one thing, the book is probably the best evangelistic thing that we've ever done. And we didn't do it with that in mind. It just kind of fell in our laps that way. Uh, and this, you know, good companies have a lot of luck as well. And I'd say that one was ultimately a really good decision, but there was a whole lot of luck involved in, in having that turn out as well as it did. Yeah, it's great. I, I feel like I, we, I won't ask you to tell the book story, which I know, like kind of how that project came to be, but I'll just share for listeners. That was just Gainsight and you saying yes to opportunities. It kind of That's came right. to you like you know, would you write this? And it, it's really interesting when I think about um, the first book that I did, Rehumanize Your Business. And uh, again, for folks listening, I, I owe Dan a lot more than I said in the introduction. He also uh, walked me through the process of, you know, the various options for getting a book uh, published. And there are numerous ones. And so now uh, if anyone has those questions, don't reach out to Dan, reach out to me. I'll take that <laughs> for you. It's just even at bobbob.com. I've had that conversation with a lot of people, including one, an amazing person you sent my way, Janelle Estes at, uh, at user yep. testing. That yep. was just any, in any case, it's all an aside. Um, I know that for us, um, cause we put our books in airport bookstores and I would periodically, periodically get outreach. Steve, uh, our CMO and my co-author would get outreach. And I know that just on three, we didn't do a deal. We weren't very diligent about tracking this, but anecdotally, I know we've done at least three deals that covered our entire marketing investment to get the book launched. Um, and that's just kind of enough, yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah. I guess uh, I, because we haven't talked about this much, um, any other thoughts, uh, on a book, like, like for someone that's thinking about, should I write a book? Um, and I'm sure you've been asked this question by a number of people. Should I do a book? Um, what is your, like your, your, your quick take on if, 
if this, this, and this, then yes, if that and that, no, and then everything else is maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the first one is you do need somebody to actually be the author of the book. Uh, and we have three author names on the book. I did all the typing, but I got lots of input, both from the community and, and the other two authors. But if you're going to do a really good book that's consistent throughout, it does need an author or a typist at least, because uh, that voice needs to be the same throughout the whole book. If you're creating a category, I think a book is a pretty meaningful aspect of that, but it really does need the whole company behind it. You can't just write a book and say, we wrote a book. I think you have to say, we're going to use that book. We're going to give it away at our conferences. We're going to use it in our marketing stuff. We're going to give it to salespeople to send out to prospects. We're going to really utilize it in a whole bunch of ways. So I think marketing has to be committed to it as well. Um, I said category creation. I think uh, it helps a lot if somebody's actually a pretty good writer, because I think it loses something when you hire a ghostwriter. Lots of people can do that. Lots of CEOs do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But but if if it doesn't have our personality and our culture in it, which is really important to gain sight, I don't think it would have had the same level of success. By the way, a quick side note, Ethan, one of the things we found is that the book became a barometer for us of the growth of the customer success industry. Right. And in different geographies, because Wiley, who was our book publisher, came back to us once upon a time and said, boy, there's a huge demand in Brazil for your book. So we're going to translate it into Portuguese. We're like, wow, we didn't know that. But then we started doing conferences and speaking at conferences in Brazil. And at some point, you know, that'll be a destination for us to open an office. When it started selling in uh, Europe and getting, and getting requests to translate it into French and German, we're like, maybe this is the time we should open our office in Europe. Now it's been translated into Chinese and Japanese. We just opened our op office in Japan. So it's really had this kind of side value, which is it's the canary in the coal mine for us about which geographies are thinking about customer success based on book sales. So kind of a little side benefit there, but I think there has to be passion. I think the company has to be behind it. It helps if someone's a good writer or at least a decent writer. Uh, to not Don't do a book just to say you did a book. That's kind of, doesn't that probably goes without saying. Don't do a book because you want to get famous because a writer of a business book, unless your name is Mark Zuckerberg, is never going to get famous. Our book sold 70,000 copies, but still outside of customer success, nobody knows my name except my family. And I don't think any of, anyone in my family has read the book either. So, um, and I think the other thing I'd say is don't write a book in the hope that it might be helpful. Write a book as part of a plan uh, to, to, to make a dent in, in whatever it is you're trying to make a dent in. So again, I, I, I don't know if you ever heard this stat. I probably shared it with you, Ethan. I find this fascinating. But if you look at every single book title on Amazon, the average number of books sold per title is, last time I checked, 17. That includes every book that J.K. Rowling has ever written, by the way, and every book Thomas Clancy has ever written. That is a long it. tail of ones and twos. Talk about long tail. In other words, the vast majority of people write a book for one person for themselves because they they can then say that they wrote a book and then two aunts and one sister buys their book, right? 
because that long tail is a bunch of twos, threes, and fours, right? To to draw to draw down J.K. Rowling down to seventeen per title says there's a whole bunch of books that sold three or four copies. Anyway, so uh, it it's quite a process to write a book, as you know. Uh, at times, pretty painful. I felt like I was back in college writing term papers uh, at different times, and that's a bad thing because you want to keep the passion throughout the book. It can't it can't sound like you tried to make a chapter three pages longer just to fill uh, just to fill the pages. That's not a good thing. So I think you have to somehow bring some passion to it and and be focused on it. It's really good to if you're going to write a book to make sure there is community input, interview people. Sometimes you have to do research. We didn't have to do a ton of research because customer success was so new, but we did talk to people and got great ideas from a number of people and quoted from some of those interviews. That helps a lot, gives credibility, uh, gives more content and gives different perspectives. So uh, again, we we don't put the word gainsight anywhere in the book. I think it might be in there in, in, in the introduction to the authors. In the legal, in the legal section. Something maybe. like that, yeah. but it's nowhere else in there, right? And that's, that was really important to us because we were never doing it to try to push our product or our company. We're trying to do it to to make the category bigger. Yeah, I love it. I started writing Rehumanize out of personal passion and excitement about how far we had come. I mentioned we, there's basically no one doing yep. video email and video messaging yep. when I joined the company. So I started out of out of passion. I think I named by name 30 or 35 customers in the book just in telling their stories and using their examples, which was really fun. The second book, Human-Centered Communication, uh, was Steve's idea, and it was kind of motivated in one of the ways you advised, which is we saw what was going on in the world and in the market. Um, It was true to our ethos of building human connection across the digital divide. So we went even wider and bigger than video email and video messaging, and it made Rehumanize feel a little bit small, but for people who want to dive, it's it's there. Anyway, yeah. I, I love that. I love that response. You've mentioned category creation a couple of times. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but um, I want to put together a little puzzle for you and tell me if it's even worth looking at. So you think about sustainability and it's got three legs to the stool, people, people, planet, profit. And I've been messing around with in my head, never resolved the idea of there's evangelism, there's content slash thought leadership, there's community. Is the stool category, um, I, does that make sense to you? Does that analogy even do anything for you at all? Or do you hate the question? <laughs> like, um, so, th- so those are those pieces. And I'm wondering, like, are those the three legs in his category, the stool? Um, evangelism, content, and community. Or or is community or customer, like, is that not even the stool? And is it a four-legged stool? And <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. I suppose we could we could uh, painfully stretch that analogy a little bit. Um, that's a great question, Ethan. I I think you're on to it though. Evangelism, community, thought leadership. Um, is that those were the three legs yeah. you said, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is the stool, or is there a fourth leg? I mean, I think I think all three of those things. I guess if I was going to use that analogy, all three of those things make up the entire stool. They're not just the legs. They're the legs and the seat because all three of them have to work together right now. You need three legs on a stool for the stool to stand up, but they're not really working together other than, you know, as a solid point. But I think the stool itself, the, the parts of the stool have to work together. And I think those three parts are not independent evangelism thought leadership should probably 
be talking to each other if they're two different groups. Like I'm talking to marketing all the time, right? Do they want me to write a blog? Should I comment on anything that they've put out? Should we add to something that someone else is, right? It's, it's part and parcel of all of the same process, which is how do we get our vision of this world out? And those are three ways of doing it, community evangelism and thought leadership. So uh, if you, if you, if you had three legs of a megaphone, right, you're, you're using a megaphone and the three legs are community, uh, community evangelism and thought leadership or something like that. So yeah, that'd be fun to play around and see if we could come yeah. up with a better. Well, I appreciate um, you entertaining um, me on it. It's, yeah. <laughs> I've never put it together and maybe, it, maybe they will pull on, but I do like that you painted a picture for me of a very, um, kind of a very modern art style or very modern design style stool is what you left <laughs> you with my head. Um, okay. For fun. Uh, last, last question, question. Um, what is something that you find yourself evangelizing or perhaps have even been accused of evangelizing in your personal life? Yeah. Well, I think we, I hope everybody has something they're passionate about outside of work. I love what I do and I love you know, being in front of people talking about customer success, but we all have something outside of work. And one of my passions outside of work, uh, and feel free to edit this, Ethan, because it has a potential of being a little political and a little um, controversial, but I'm a real passionate um, helper, advisor, board member, and supporter of uh, the pro-life movement. And in particular, the people that work at the center's that counsel women who come in who are in really difficult situations financially, they're pregnant, whatever the, they might be a single mother, the father might have left because she's pregnant, whatever. There is so much compassion and care that's required to take someone through that process, regardless of what the outcome is. And then there's oftentimes a lot of counseling after the outcome, because even women who give up their babies for adoption go through a mourning process, as do women who have miscarriages, right? So the, the ministering to all of these women and then ultimately, in many cases, the babies, it's just such a, it's just such a feet on the street, live in the dirt, compassionate process that I, I just think it's really special. It gets, it gets some, kind of gets a bad name some, sometimes politically for people who are opposed to that idea, but I don't know what could be wrong with somebody uh, opening the doors to say, if you want to sit down and have a conversation about this, we would love to do that. And if we can help you uh, with adoption services or with baby clothes or whatever it might be, we're here to help. That's that's just the way I think ministries ought to be, not just throwing money at stuff, but actually sitting with the people who need help. The same, same would be said for someone who is um, helping homeless people. You don't do that by driving by and throwing $100 bills out the window. You do that by sitting down and saying, how can I help you? What do you, what do you really need? Can I get you to a place where we can get you washed up and cleaned and get you a suit and some skills uh, where you could go actually find a job if that's what you want, right? So I just think those are the things that I care about in life are things where people are really going in to places where it's not where they want to be. It's not where they want to spend their life, but there are people there who need their help. So for what it's worth, that's uh, that's one of my passions. I evangelize that whenever I get a chance. Uh, and so, again, feel free to edit if you want to. But that's you asked the question, so you got yeah, the answer. That, that won't be edited. And I really appreciate because it just matches up with so many of the themes you already shared, like in a 
business context, but with a much deeper, even humanity to it, which is when you talked about solving people's problems, changing people's work in their lives, um, active listening, and actually being curious and humble enough to hear the answers and do your best to respond to them. I mean, it's completely in parallel with everything you yeah. shared with the podcast, yeah. but with this extra layer of you know, shared humanity that, um, that is easy to lose sight of. I, I really appreciate that. And at BombBomb, you know, our mission is to rehumanize the planet, yep. which, which I say is to rehumanize populations of people who've been dehumanized by system or circumstance. And that You're looks right. a lot of different ways for me personally, that's around hunger. Yep. Uh, but for our organization, we do work with single moms who found themselves in terrible situations and, they need support. They need education. They need skills training. Yep. Um, in some cases, they need basic. How do I keep a household budget and keep yes. the laundry clean and everything? Like, yeah, exactly. uh, and, and we work with the, the primary um, homeless support operation uh, in Colorado Springs. Of course, now our employees are more uh, dispersed about the world. We used to be very concentrated in Colorado Springs. Right. Anyway, right. Um, I, it, I, it, was, it, it fits perfectly with everything that you've already shared. Yeah, I mean, some of that, uh, some of that, what I just talked about is part and parcel with being in customer success, com compassion and community and curiosity, right? All of those things, they make us more human and they make us better friends, partners, spouses, brothers, sisters, and members of community. I think when we have real compassion and we really want to be part of a community and every human being wants to be part of something bigger than themselves, that's why people seek out tribes. Tribes aren't necessarily good, but that's why people join tribes because they have a sense of belonging. And the more we can find good, positive places for people to belong, the better off everybody is. That's so true with people who are hungry or people who are homeless, right? Yeah. And, and uh, I think unhealthy tribe is where we're not willing to go past the label, go past the black That's and right. white, not willing to get their hands dirty, get into the ambiguity and the nuance and really deal with human beings for who they are in this moment yeah. and seeing if you can, in fact, help them uh, to their next step instead of just, you know, standing back with your, you know, the right, the right, the right clothes, the right color, the right attitude, the right response, the right labels, et cetera. That's a whole separate podcast conversation or better yet, uh, next time you Personal come this way, yeah. uh, I'd love to spend time with you in person. So uh, before I let you go, uh, for people who have stuck with us all the way to the very, very end, um, where would you send them to learn more about you, about Gainsight, about customer success? Uh, where would you send folks? Yeah, don't don't worry about trying to know any more about me. I suppose if you looked really hard, you could find out what my golf handicap is somewhere online, but you probably don't want to know. Uh, so I think the best place to go is gainsight.com. Uh, go to gainsight.com slash resources and you'll see uh, blogs and webinars and all of, all of the content that we're putting out. And then if you go to Amazon and search on the term customer success in books, I think ours is typically the first one that comes up. It's a bright blue color cover. Uh, and if you're interested and, and want to kind of educate yourself on that, then that's a pretty good place to start. So gainsight.com or Go find our book and pay good money for it, if you would, and, and, and leave it. Make sure I'd rather have you read it and not pay for it than pay for it and not leave it. So, yeah. And and bonus points, uh, frosting, cherry on top, whatever, for writing a review. Especially a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, this yeah. has been awesome. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Good to talk to you. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. 
Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.